1: Hello! Hello! And welcome to another episode of Philosophy for Our Times, bringing the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Darcy, I am on the editorial team here at the IAI.
2: And I'm Ricky, I'm production lead here at the IAI.
1: So today's debate is consciousness in the machine. And we've got some amazing speakers talking about this subject matter. We've got Donald Hoffman, who is a cognitive psychologist, Bernardo Kastrup, Dutch computer scientist, and Susan Schneider, who is a great AI researcher. And this debate was actually recorded at an AI Live, which we do every month online. You should buy tickets because they're amazing. Ricky, do you want to tell us a bit more about what this is all about? Consciousness in the machine.
2: Yes, obviously AI is in the news a lot at the moment. And this debate questions, will those machines ever be conscious? Obviously, they're becoming more intelligent. They can do amazing things. Obviously, chat GPT. can write essays for you, speak to you about...
1: Do a lot of my job for me, actually. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, so Bernardo Castro and Sue Schneider particularly get into it in this. Very different views on whether AI can be conscious. And Donald Hoffman is always a fantastic speaker with radical Great views ideas. on consciousness.
1: Yeah, I think it should be really great. I think that maybe we've got this kind of desire to really like only conceive of AI within the kind of framework of human faculties, which maybe negates any kind of like, as you're saying, like desire to understand how it will be radically different. Like, oh, is it similar in this way? Is it similar in this way? No, it's going to be completely. I mean, it's obviously working on the basis that it's trying to copy and hone and mimic intelligence, like human intelligence, but it's going to be, I don't know. Do you think Do you think AI will ever be conscious, Ricky?
2: Uh, I think my problem is that I think it's impossible to know. So yeah. if it becomes conscious, we won't know. Yeah. But then it could be feeling things like pain, it could be feeling love, yeah. and we just won't you know don't, you that. You won't
1: know, there's so many ethical implications. Mm. Yeah, I don't really even know if you're conscious. Exactly. You could just be... I'm not, Darcy. Yeah, it's so worrying. How are we ever going to tell if AI is conscious? we should probably hand over to the host at this point, Kurt jai Take it away.
3: My name's Kurt jai I'm the host of the YouTube channel, Theories of Everything. And it's my distinguished pleasure to host this talk with Donald Hoffman, Susan Schneider, and Bernardo Castro. Donald Hoffman is an American cognitive psychologist working at the University of California, Irvine. He's making waves with his new theory, suggesting that instead of presenting reality as it really is, quote-unquote, that our perception is tantamount to a desktop user interface enabling us to use reality effectively. Don's latest paper is Fusions of Consciousness, and his latest book is The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. Bernardo Kastrup is the Dutch computer scientist and is one of the prominent defenders of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. Bernardo has worked as a scientist in leading laboratories across the world, including CERN, searching for supersymmetry and finding the Higgs as an artifact, and the Phillips Research Laboratories, and he's a regular contributor to Scientific American. Susan Schneider is an academic and public philosopher, the William F. Dietrich, Professor of Philosophy at Florida Atlantic University and a recipient of the National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award. She's also the co-director of the Machine Perception and Cognitive Robotics Lab at Florida Atlantic University, and her recent book, Artificial You and the Future of Mind, is now available. The question that we're going to use as a catalyst for this discussion is, should we accept that consciousness arises only in biological beings and that AI simply isn't made of the right ingredients? And we'll go in order of Don, Susan, and Bernardo, and welcome, everyone. It's good to see you all. So, Don.
4: So, I think the very question itself makes an assumption. It assumes that space and time and physical objects are fundamental, that that the fundamental reality of space and time and particles and quantum fields is not conscious. And that somehow consciousness is a late comer in the universe, that somehow uh, life emerged from un, you know, non-organic uh, starting points uh, you know, like particles, and uh, then eventually consciousness emerged. And I think that the whole framework is, is wrong, that our best science, quantum field theory with Einstein theory of gravity, and evolution by natural selection tells us that space and time are not fundamental the elementary particles are not the fundamental reality and so the whole framework of the question how does consciousness arise from physical systems neurons or artificial intelligence is is the wrong way to frame the question because space and time themselves are not fundamental so we have to 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 come up with a more fundamental framework to even address this question what is beyond space and time and physicists are finding new structures like decorated permutations beyond space and time, so they're going to change completely how we even think about this question. So, so my answer is that <clears throat> we're not thinking deeply enough about the question if we frame it that way. Susan.
0: So I guess here I would say no, first and foremost. Um, I call my approach to machine consciousness the wait-and-see approach. Um, It's designed to be a middle ground between a view called biological naturalism, which says consciousness is intrinsically biological, and a view called techno-optimism associated with thinkers like Ray Kurzweil and other transhumanists. That view claims that conscious machines are inevitable as an outgrowth of sophisticated intelligence. I reject both of these views. Um, First off, let me say consciousness In machines, the idea is conceptually and logically coherent. We see it in science fiction films all the time. There's nothing logically flawed about the idea. My problem, though, is with the idea that the techno-optimists have that as AI gets smarter and smarter, consciousness will be an outgrowth of intelligent machines. So I think that... um, We don't know if building conscious AI is compatible with the laws of nature. We don't know if it's technically feasible, even if it is compatible with the laws of nature to actually build conscious machines. And we don't know if AI companies would even want to do it. I mean, look at the mess with Blake LeMoyne, right? Um, He claimed that Google's Lambda system was conscious and it got him in a lot of trouble um, Google's Lambda system claim to be conscious, uh, these large language models, they're getting smarter and smarter. If they look to the public, like they're conscious, I bet Google and the rest of big tech will try not to build conscious AI, because if you're trying to build an AI service and people are convinced it's conscious, that looks like slavery. Hmm.
5: Bernardo. I am with uh, Dawn that uh, consciousness is not something that is generated, it's not a secondary or epiphenomenon of nature. It is primary, it is out there. But when we ask, is a computer conscious, we mean something else. We We mean to say that the computer has a private conscious inner life of its own. And I do think private conscious inner life arises, it emerges in nature. It's not something that was there from the get-go. So the question now is, okay, we know that we, biological entities, have private consciousness in their lives. Does a computer or can a computer ever have private consciousness in their life? I would say we have absolutely no good reason to think that at all. Certainly not idealism. Idealism would say everything is in consciousness not that everything is conscious in the sense of having private conscious in their life of its own. The justification for the hypothesis that silicon computers will be conscious is based on some form of isomorphism or some, some form of similarity between the patterns of information flow in a biological brain and a silicon computer. Uh, but if similarity is uh, the crux of the argument, then we have to look at the concrete reality of a silicon computer and a brain, a metabolizing wet brain, and 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 realize that they are completely different. And that to find the similarity, you have to take several steps of abstraction away from concrete reality <clears> until <throat> you find a level where there is an isomorphism. But it's entirely arbitrary to say that uh, at that level, the similarity is defining and that all preceding levels don't matter, although they show profound dissimilarities, that those don't matter. To me, this is a form of belief, I think, The chance that a silicon computer will be conscious is just about the same as the chance that my computer will pee on my desk if I run an accurate simulation of kidney function on it. Now, when it comes to urine, we understand the difference between a phenomenon and the simulation of the phenomenon. But when it comes to consciousness, for some reason, we don't. And I think the reason for that is that the the human impulse for religion manifests itself in whatever way it can. And transhumanism is a, is an expression of the religious impulse, and it abandons reason, abandons evidence, and engages into a very suspicious uh, form of thinking that is more about wishful belief than, than reason. All right, let's penetrate to the core of this dispute. What is consciousness and
3: what best explains consciousness? We'll go in order of Bernardo, Susan, and Don. And Bernardo, briefly, if you don't mind explaining to the person or a thing being simulated in the machine, does it not feel wetness? Machi- the wetness is not
5: outside the machine, but to what's being simulated, if you could integrate that into your answer. So when I use the word consciousness, I mean phenomenal consciousness. An entity is conscious if there is something it is like to be that entity. In other words, if the entity has experience at the most basic level. So for me, consciousness does not require Higher level mental functions such as metacognition, self reflection, introspection. No, if there is something it is like to be something, then that something is conscious. Is there something it is like to be an entity in a computer simulation? No, I don't think there is anything it is like to be that entity. In the same sense that there is nothing it's like to be my computer mouse. Actually, there isn't even a mouse because, no. Not everything we have a name for in language is an actual entity in the the ontological structure of nature. So I think the the, the burden of argument is on those who think computers will be conscious, because I don't think we have any reason uh, to entertain the hypothesis seriously at all. all. I, I can't refute the hypothesis, but then again, I can't refute the flying spaghetti monster. The burden is not on me. To refute the flying spaghetti monster people have to provide an argument for us to take that hypothesis seriously i think conscious silicon computers are the same thing and they are not better epistemically at all it's just the same kind of well if, if i'm if i am be myself the same kind of nonsensical hypothesis susan
3: please answer the question but also if you want to respond to any of the comments bernardo had just
0: I agree with Bernardo that it's the felt quality of experience, what it feels like from the inside to be that entity. And the big question is whether a machine could be conscious. Um, Maybe I'll just address the issue from my perspective as the former leader of a big project at NASA and the NASA chair, because there my job was to articulate the relationship between consciousness and intelligence and talk about how we might locate either one in the universe. And one thing I want to caution against actually, and I know all of us here, we have very detailed metaphysical theories of consciousness is assuming from our theories that we can read in to the search for conscious machines or conscious beings on other planets, because look at the search for life in the context of astrobiology. When you look at the definition of life that NASA endorses, for example, self-replicating and capable of biological evolution, it is tremendously open, capable of Darwinian evolution in particular, to the possibility that life could look very different on other planets. It doesn't need to be recognizably life to us. The big thing that I think we need to do here when we search for other forms of consciousness is keep an open mind and realize that it's going to look very different than the human case. And I think the interesting question here from a theoretical standpoint is how different will allow it to be before we say it's not consciousness at all, which is one thing I want to throw out there. So Bernardo and I both thought, well, consciousness is essentially the phenomenal feel. Well, To me, that does seem like a necessary ingredient in consciousness. And if a machine lacks it, then to me, it doesn't seem conscious. It has some other qualities and maybe based on those, it will be dangerous or it will be of moral significance. But I think that that is one thing where, if we were to look for consciousness elsewhere, we might take as a fundamental ingredient but i think it will be very very different when we get to the case of synthetic machines
3: briefly you said it was necessary the felt experience of consciousness is it also sufficient if that's too long of an answer then we'll get to dawn's
0: yeah but i i think that you know that's where you get into issues involving how to define that felt quality i mean for example there are some people who define consciousness in such a demanding way, like Daniel Dennett (laughs) in his paper, Quining Qualia, uh, you know, where he listed like seven fundamental ingredients or other people try to build in a whole theory, like a higher order theory of consciousness that intellectualizes consciousness. And that's where I think we need to be incredibly open and humble and not import our own theories of consciousness into the debate too early.
4: Okay, done. You know, I would agree that uh, consciousness is something that's experienced something phenomenal. So for example, my, uh, the taste of coffee, the smell of a rose, uh, the feeling of a headache, these are all specific conscious experiences. And so that's what I'm, what I mean when I talk about conscious experiences. And what's remarkable is that my, my brilliant friends and colleagues who are, are, uh, studying this problem, Using cognitive neuroscience and or physical systems like artificial intelligences. Uh, theories like the integrated information theory or uh, orchestrated collapse of quantum states of microtubules and so forth, what's remarkable is that um, when you look at all these theories, there is not a single specific conscious experience that has ever been explained. What is the pattern of integrated information that must be the taste of vanilla and could not possibly be the smell of a rose? What is the orchestrated collapse, the precise orchestrated collapse of quantum states of microtubules that must be the taste of chocolate and, and could not be, uh, you know, the taste of garlic? If you ask, and I, these are my friends, and I've asked them in public at, at conferences and so forth, give me a specific conscious experience that you that your theory can tell us. Because it, these are supposed to be theories of conscious experience, so they should explain conscious experiences. So what experience can you explain? What integrated information must be the taste of chocolate or or whatever one you you can do and what's remarkable is there is no physicalist theory or integrated information theory or work straight collapse, whatever there is no theory of that type that can explain even one specific conscious experience we're batting zero nothing there's nothing on the table so so that's why i said it's premature to talk about so how could computers boot up consciousness we we have no idea about how anything could boot up consciousness right now from a physical system literally nothing is on the table so so until we can solve that we don't know how neurons could possibly boot up consciousness there's nothing on the table so that's why this is a you know i said it was premature to be asking whether um you know only biological systems can boot up consciousness and not ais we have no theory about how biological systems can boot up consciousness there's there's literally nothing on the table that makes sense and I predict that there—that's a principled problem. This is not simply; be, th- these are bright people. These are good friends of mine. They're—they're they're brilliant. But when you start with space and time and physical objects inside space and time, like particles or neurons or whatever, um, you're starting with what physics tells us is not fundamental reality. So if you're starting with something that we know is not fundamental, good luck trying to boot up a theory of anything else from that. So, so that's my sort of my diagnosis of the problem. So we have to go after. I think uh, I agree with with Bernardo, you know, starting with an idea in which consciousness itself is fundamental. Bernardo going after that philosophically. As a scientist, I'm trying to go after it mathematically, try to get a mathematically precise theory of, of the very kinds of things that, that, that Bernardo is talking about and then show how space and time are booted up precisely from a theory of consciousness. So get a dynamics of consciousness outside of space time and boot up space and time and, and, and for example, um, scattering amplitudes of particles, get all of that uh, without a hand wave, get all of that derived precisely from a theory of consciousness. So in other words, we've tried to start with space and time and particles and biology and try to boot up a theory of consciousness from that. We've not gotten a single success, not one specific conscious experience. But if we start with consciousness being fundamental and a mathematical model of that, then I think we can boot up space and time and particles and show where they come up and, and we can bat 100 on that. So I think We should start with consciousness and show space and time is just a user interface that some consciousnesses use. But if we start the other direction, our best science tells us, good luck, you've got the wrong foundation.
3: What if someone says that there is no the taste of garlic or the taste of vanilla? The way that broccoli tastes to me is different than the way it tastes to you, and you bring associations with it atop. So that to think of it as an absolute, you have to think of it more in terms of a relation. So what if someone says that? And then also number two is has, do you feel like your theory has made progress toward picking out a certain element and saying that this is the taste of garlic and it could not be any other way?
4: Right. So uh, those are both excellent points. So I I would agree that there's probably, um, we we can imagine there, my experience of the taste of coffee is very different from your experience of the taste of coffee. Some people don't like it and some people do, for example. So it seems that there's something very, very different that can happen there. So a theory, a physicalist theory would need to explain first what's in common with all those people that we say that this is the taste of coffee, um, right? So we all you know, say I'm, I'm tasting something like coffee. When So what is if, if we find some kind of neural correlates of that, great. We, we can find neural correlates of the, of the taste of coffee. And we can then see how those neural correlates vary from Bernardo to Don to Susan. And, and that's, that's, that's great, so we can see those differences. But as, if we're then going to have a scientific theory that says it's the neural activity or the orchestrated collapse of quantum states, microtubules, uh, or integrated information that's creating the, the taste of chocolate or the taste of coffee, then, then those theories themselves are saying that they're, they're gonna do this. They're, they're saying, we're gonna start with the integrated information, we're gonna give you the taste of chocolate. Okay, well, no one told you you have to do that. You, no one says you have to take on that problem, but they've said we're going to take on that problem. So then as a scientist, it's my I'm, I'm very interested. well, you can explain conscious experiences. So which conscious experience can you explain? And can you explain the variability? you know Hoffman's taste of chocolate versus Susan's uh, taste of chocolate, how you know what can you explain there? Well, right now, absolutely nothing. There's not a single experience that they can explain. And, and again, you know, no one's put a gun to their head and said, you have to start with physical systems and biology and boot up consciousness. No one said you have to do that. They're the ones that are volunteering to do it. And I'm just saying they volunteered to do it. And so, so far they're batting zero. Um, so maybe we need to look somewhere else. Well, I forgot the second part of your question, Kurt.
3: Is there any element of your, is there a part of your theory that picks out as an element,
4: this is garlic and this is, this cannot be not garlic? I start with conscious experiences. So every theory in science makes assumptions. No, no. Th- uh, unfortunately, you know, I'll have to, with with all due respect, there is no theory of everything in science. <laughs> every every theory makes uh, certain assumptions, um, and given those assumptions, it'll explain other things. But no theory ever explains its own assumptions. And so I start with conscious experiences and say, I'm going to start if you grant me conscious experiences like the taste of coffee and so forth and of dynamics, then I'll show you how I can boot up space and time. And and the reason I think that's interesting is because the the physicalist approaches are saying, grant me space and time and particles. Grant me biology. Oh, now grant me also these orchestrated collapses and these integrated information. And then you'll have to also grant me the experiences, because I can't explain them. I have to stipulate the experiences too. I have to stipulate that there is this correlation between this experience and this integrated information or this orchestrated collapse. So they're stipulating space and time, the integrated information and the experience. I say, let's just stipulate the experiences. I'll explain all the rest from that. So, so, by Occam's razor, it's a much simpler approach and therefore to be preferred. Do you want
5: to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
3: Great, now on to phase two. AI is constantly improving. I think we can all agree on that. The possibility of artificial intelligence is around the corner now, sorry, artificial general intelligence, perhaps we don't agree, but let's imagine that's the case, that general artificial intelligence is around the corner. Would a machine with such an intelligence, a human level intelligence, thus have human level consciousness? We'll go Susan, then Bernardo, then Don, And Susan, feel free to comment and everyone else, feel free to comment on yeah. what you've heard before.
0: Okay, yeah. Um- To Donald, Um, so we can't wait for a theory of consciousness to be discovered. Um, And just like we can't wait for a theory of the nature of space-time emergence to be discovered. So while I, like you, see the two as connected, we have urgent issues right now arising all the time concerning the question of machine consciousness. So I think we have to actually separate out the issues and figure out here and now ways of dealing with the fact that there are machines claiming to be conscious and there are intelligent humans like Blake LeMoyne, who is saying that the machines they're creating seem conscious. So that's just the first thing I want to mention. Um, But, you know, the question itself is tricky because um, it brings up, artificial general intelligence, Kurt. So you're asking about um, the possibility of AGI or artificial general intelligence and whether consciousness would fall out of that. And what I wanna do though is just stress that I don't actually think there'll be anything like AGI ever created, at least in the normal sense that people have of AGI. So AGI is usually considered to be human level so something that's functionally isomorphic to a human. AI companies have already beat humans in various domains. They're not gonna dumb down their machines, right? I think that we'll see very soon what I call savant systems. I have several uh,
3: questions for you just on savant systems yeah, written down and we yeah. can get to that I at mean, some point or
0: such another time. It's an interesting time. thing because I mean, just as with a human savant, there are strange deficits, but they're beyond human capacities. So too, I think the first general intelligent systems that we'll see, they'll be like that. And they'll be made up of AI services and they'll be highly distributed, right? They'll be so different from us that we cannot assume that they're conscious to get back to the end of your question. You're wondering, well, would these kind of entities whether they be AGIs or savant systems be conscious? <laughs> well, I think we need to conceive of a situation where there's something like a global Google brain, combined processing of different AI services owned by Google that's spatiotemporally distributed, and that's the Savant system. And why believe anything like that would have the felt quality of experience unless one dilutes down the notion of that to include panpsychism, the view that everything's conscious? I mean, I just can't see that sort of a system being conscious. But again, I have a wait and see approach. I'm in principle, open-minded.
3: Do you mind explaining why you singled out Google? Is that just for instance, or did you actually mean that like both. Google, it would be a Google brain?
0: I mean, both. I mean, I think Google is a soft monopoly. It has a lot of very promising AI services. It has very intelligent, large language models, but you know, and they have the aspiration, unlike open AI, which is also building very intelligent large language models and I think we have to wonder if there's already a savant system instantiated across the planet right now that we just don't know about and indeed how would we even identify one if it exists?
5: Okay, Bernardo. I think intelligence and consciousness are completely different uh, notions. Um, One can be objectively measured that is intelligence, uh, as it is defined in, in AI and in computer engineering, computer science. Intelligence just means a certain way of processing data that leads to effective solutions to problems or answers to questions without the user having to give a recipe for how to produce the answer or how to produce the solution. So it's basically a, an objective way of processing data that leads to solutions. Consciousness is what it is likeness it is the felt qualities of experience these are completely different things Mm. so even if we achieve general ai and i think we will i mean i work in ai myself i think we will achieve general ai that doesn't entail or imply or even suggest that that goes hand in hand with private conscious in their life at all why did why would it it's a completely arbitrary association that we make now people might say well, Bernardo, but if an AI claims to be conscious and behaves just just like a human and passes the Turing test, wouldn't we have to take it seriously? I would say, not at all, because it was constructed to look and behave like a human. I mean, we can construct a doll tomorrow that looks like a human. Will that similarity be grounds for us to suspect that the doll might be human? Of course not. It was constructed to look like it, like it. in exactly the same way that a chatbot looks like a human talking doesn't provide any grounds whatsoever for us to think that it may have conscious, private consciousness in our life like a human because it was made to imitate a human. It was deliberately constructed for that purpose. So that provides grounds for no philosophical speculation at all. So I think that the so-called ethical problems of dealing with AIs that claim to be conscious is equivalent to the ethical problem of judging um, the ethical imperatives of the flying spaghetti monster. It's the same thing. In other words, it's a non-existing problem that we make up to maybe give expression to our repressed religious impulse or to entertain ourselves. But it's just not a thing at all. It's just not there. AIs are tools. And we have to have safety measures when we are using powerful tools. That's no different for AI. A nuclear power plant is a a tool to produce energy. It can also kill us. It can be dangerous. So we have to put safety mechanisms in place to protect us against the tool we created. AI is the same thing. It's a very powerful tool. It can go berserk. So we have to put safety measurements in place not to get hurt by the, the tool, AIs, uh, that we use. That doesn't mean that we have an ethical problem in our hands at all. Not anymore than we would have an ethical problem of, of, about shutting down a nuclear reactor and killing the thing. We, we don't talk about that problem in these terms. It's not like we, have, we cannot kill the nuclear reactor. It's alive. If we shut it down, it will die. No, it's just a tool. And we take precautions against the tool. Same thing for AI. Everything else is just fantasy. All right, Don. Well,
4: I, I think that AI systems will become so brilliant, so complicated that uh, we will not be able to even understand them. They will write poetry that no person could ever write, have deeper insights into human nature than any psychologist has ever had. In every arena uh, that we have thought is uniquely human, they will transcend us uh, and leave us in the dust. No doubt, I have no doubt about that. We, we're, we're stuck with 86 billion neurons. They're not stuck with that limitation. So the, the best poetry, the best art, the best movie scripts, the best insights into human nature in the future will come from, from AIs, and, and we have to get used to that. Do I think that they're conscious? I think, again, I don't want to accept the premise of that, that question. I think the distinction that we make between living and non-living things is not a principle distinction. It's an artifact of the limitations of our space-time user interface. So space and time, our perceptions are not a perception of reality as it is. It's a headset we've evolved um, a, a headset of, you know, four dimensions, the three dimensions of space, one dimension of time, with physical objects, and a headset, a user interface, necessarily is simplifying certain things, it gives you good insights into some, some parts of the reality that, uh, outside, and it simplifies other things. So if consciousness is fundamental, and space time is just a headset, then I'm always, without exception interacting with consciousness, no matter what I do. When I pick up a spoon, when I drink a cup of coffee, I'm always interacting with consciousness, but my, my user interface is dumbing things down. So I, I don't ever see all the time the consciousness behind when I, when I talk with Bernardo, I'm just seeing skin, hair and eyes, but, but that symbol in my interface gives me genuine insight into Bernardo's consciousness and I can tell if he's interested or if he disagrees. I, I get it. So my interface gives me a portal into Bernardo's consciousness. Whereas when I look at my cat, my portal is not nearly as good. I have some insight into the experience. It likes tuna, but it doesn't like uh, you know, peanut butter. So there, I have some insight into, into when, I, when I have a, an interface symbol that I call an ant. My insight is even less, and at some point when I get down to a rock, my insight is 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 gone. And so, but that doesn't mean that um, I'm not interacting with consciousness when I see a rock. It just means that my interface gave up. So, so, so for example, right now on the screen, I see Kurt's face on 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 pixels on the screen. Some of the pixels are just a, a pixels for a wall. They're giving me no insight into consciousness. But the pixels that I see that are Kurt's face are giving me some insight into Kurt's conscious experiences. Does that mean that some of the pixels on my screen are conscious pixels and other pixels are not conscious pixels? No, it's just that some pixels provide a portal that's useful into Kurt's conscious experiences and other pixels do not. So a rock um, is a set of pixels in my interface that doesn't give me insight into the consciousness behind. But that doesn't mean that. There's some principal distinction between, you know, unconscious rocks and, and conscious human brains. That that distinction that we make is mistaking a limit of our interface for an insight into the nature of reality. It's a it's a rookie mistake. We have to recognize that that's a simple rookie mistake. We don't understand how interfaces work, and and but we're inclined to make that mistake when we take space and time and physical objects as fundamental. If they are fundamental, then of course. Rocks aren't conscious and, and, and you know brains are. But when you realize that evolution tells us that space and time is just a user interface, then, then you get a completely different way. So you can see why I'm completely changing the way I think about this whole conscious, this consciousness thing. What we're doing is arguing about limitations of our interface. Once we realize we're arguing about the limitations of, of what our interface reveals to us, then it changes the whole question. Susan, do you have any comments on what Don had just said?
0: Well, I'm open to looking at different theories of space-time emergence, but I don't think that from that issue in physics, we should draw any conclusions about the truth of idealism. Um, And I also think that we're confusing the issue if we start getting too immersed in particular theories of consciousness because we don't understand consciousness and we have to decide whether machines are conscious now and within the next 100 years. So I think that's where we should focus our attention.
3: Do we, will we ever have a way of determining whether a machine is conscious or even an organism or even other people?
0: Yeah, yeah, so this is a really good question. And I think, you know, I'm assuming all of us agree that you can't tell from an axiomatic argument that the person next to you is conscious. You're you're not going to achieve certainty. I mean, philosophers have long been skeptics about other minds and the nature of the external world. And so what we usually do though, I mean, I don't worry about consciousness of other humans is we look for similarities to ourselves and we see similar behaviors. And also we look at science which identifies consciousness within nervous systems. And then we extrapolate to non-human animals, right? So this is a sort of very non-top-down methodology, if you will, that looks towards science and behavior to try to understand why others are conscious. Now, we're not gonna have either of those to go on in the case of AI. I mean, as Bernardo mentioned, AIs can be programmed to act conscious. So we can't take that as evidence that they're conscious and they don't have nervous systems. I mean, it's super tricky. I mean, and that's not to say it isn't tricky with, um, you know, crabs or the octopus to understand their consciousness, but I think it's even harder in the case of synthetic consciousness. So what do we do? Well, we develop tests. We need to work on these. Um, I've started in my book, Artificial You, to develop tests for consciousness. Um, so one would be to box in the AI at the R&D stage. Box
3: in? Sure.
0: Boxing in an AI is a strategy in AI safety. So that means that you deny the AI access to the internet, facts about human minds, consciousness. It doesn't have access like you know, Lambda did to Wikipedia. Um, And you ask it questions to see if it seems conscious. And if it does, and it didn't have access to those kinds of facts, then I think in that case, in the case of that system, we need to be very careful how we treat it ethically. It may be conscious for all we know. So that's one test. I call that the ACT test. It was developed with Edwin Turner, an astrophysics professor at Princeton. But there are other methodologies as well. Another methodology, which I think will be very useful, is to just simply wait and see when microchips are placed in the human brain to see, in those cases, if consciousness emerges in areas of the brain in which there were deficits for consciousness before. So in other words, as medicine begins to use neural prosthetics, in the brain like I mean right now um you know we have an artist artificial hippocampus in phase two clinical trials in humans as we begin to utilize such things in the parts of the brain that underlie conscious experience we can see whether microchips are the right stuff I call this the chip test and it's basically not really a single test uh, but it does suggest that we might one day be able to find out whether machines are conscious.
5: Thank you. Bernardo. You can I also comment on uh, uh, Don's uh, previous reply? Of course. Uh, but but first, your immediate question. Only if it's disputatious. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly disputatious. <laughs> Finally, Don and I can <laughs> find something that they can slightly <laughs> dispute. Um, uh, regarding your first question, uh, though. Um, can we definitely prove or refute that an entity is conscious or unconscious? I would say no. Unless you are the entity, you cannot definitely refute whether the entity has consciousness in their life or not. Um, But does this acknowledgement reflect any importance? I would also say no. I can also not definitely refute that the flying spaghetti monster exists, and is running the solar system from an invisible higher dimension with his invisible noodly appendages. The question is not what we can prove or refute. Very, very rarely we can definitively prove or refute anything. The question is, what do we have good reasons to entertain seriously as a hypothesis? And I think that if all of you had experience designing microchips, you would know that we have absolutely no good reason to ever entertain the hypothesis that a silicon microchip constituted of millions of microscopic electronic switches that can be opened or closed, which doesn't metabolize, doesn't have neurotransmitters, is a completely different thing, will ever be conscious. Um, It may look like it is conscious because it is constructed to look like that. And that that doesn't mean that it is conscious. Now, regarding uh, uh, Don's point, I I know where he's coming, I know where you're coming from, uh, Don, and and I agree with the truth of what you're saying, but I also think it's important that we acknowledge the legitimacy of a very precise and natural question. If somebody was here uh, in my study, sitting next to me, looking at this entity here, me, and then looking at this other entity, a metal uh, bottle, it is legitimate to ask, uh, is this thing here correlated with conscious inner life? The answer would be yes. And then it's just as valid to ask, is this thing here correlated with conscious in life? Is there something it is like to be the metal bottle? I think that's a valid question. Um, and I think the answer is no, there is nothing it is like to be a metal bottle. Now, how, how do I reconcile this with where you are coming from? You gave the answer. I, I just want to highlight this for, for the, the audience. The mistake we make is to consider the metal bottle a thing. There is no thing. Things are whatever we have a noun in our language for. That doesn't mean that the structure of nouns in our language is the ontic structure of reality out there. In reality, there are no things because there is no objective way to carve out subsets or segments of the universe in a way that is ontically grounded. We carve out reality into inanimate things for convenience. Where does the river end and the ocean begin? If I remove the spark plugs of a car and the car stopped running, does it mean that the spark plugs are integral to the car? Because without the spark plugs, the car doesn't move? Well, if so, then you need the gravity of the planet. You need the road in order for the car to to sort of have some traction and move. Uh, you, You need air for combustion. And quickly, you realize that there are no things. There is only the inanimate universe as a whole. And that's where we make a mistake. We try to attribute consciousness to s- segments of the universe that are arbitrarily carved out. They are nominal stuff. It's the structure of language that we apply onto reality merely for convenience. So you can go to someone someone, and say, I want to buy a car. But there are no cars. There are no bottles. There are only living beings. And living beings, why do I say that? Well, we are one, we are are a living being, we know we are conscious, and we can judge by analogy what other things are very much like us, and therefore it's valid to entertain the hypothesis that they too are conscious. You can do that with other humans that behave like you, but are also structurally much like you when represented on the dashboard or the virtual reality headset. And you can go down to even single-celled organisms, bacteria, archaea, because they also metabolize. And metabolism is something very specific, very unique in nature. Nothing in nature that isn't metabolism look even remotely like metabolism. So that's where I think uh, um, we should legitimize the question, is the bottle conscious? And the answer is, there is no bottle you are carving out a subset of nature in a merely nominal and arbitrary way that is motivated by convenience, not by ontic reasoning. So, Don, what is your response to Bernardo's admittingly mild criticism?
4: Well, uh, I would agree with uh, Susan and Bernardo. I'll I'll just say I I agree with Susan that um, uh, from the fact that physics tells us that space-time is not fundamental, it does not follow that, that consciousness is, I agree with her completely. So that's an extra hypothesis that I'm making and the, that hypothesis will have to earn its keep. It will have to actually show precisely how space-time does emerge and give us back all the scattering amplitudes and so forth, or the hypothesis that consciousness is fundamental uh, is not interesting. So so we'll see. So I agree with Susan on that and, and I agree with uh, everything that Ber- Bernardo has said. I'll, I'll, I'll say that this idea that um, space-time is just an interface and that the distinction we make between living and non-living or conscious or non-conscious parts of that interface is, is not a principle distinction. That, that sounds like a very negative kind of thing, but let me say a, a, a positive way that, that, that deals with this issue of consciousness. One thing that we're very concerned about is, is the following. If I take a hammer and hit a rock, I'm not too worried. I'm not hurting. So it's, I have no worry that something hurts because I took a hammer to a rock. Whereas if I took a hammer to a human body, I'm worried about that. So there is something that's very very practical. You know, you go to jail for taking a hammer to a human body, you do not go to jail for taking a hammer to a rock. That that's that's important. Now I'm saying that we're always interacting with consciousness. So so what gives here right? So, so am I saying that if you hit a rock you're actually hurting consciousness? Well, that's where we have to really understand our interface. So an interface is is giving me more access to consciousness in certain areas and less access in others. So we have to actually get a mathematically precise understanding of our user interface, space and time as a user interface, how it connects with this whole network of conscious agents. And so that we understand precisely when my actions actually cause harm in in the sense of painful experiences to conscious agents. And when I'm interacting with conscious agents, I'm affecting them, but not in a way that causes harm. And presumably we'll find that somehow when i hit a hammer or a rock with a hammer i'm not hurting conscious agents but i am i am affecting them but i'm not hurting them so so that's why this change in the question is not merely some kind of academic squibble it's really important because it's not which object is conscious it's rather we need to really understand our interface reverse engineer it and understand when we cause harm to consciousnesses and when we don't so this is this changes the question in a very practical way, and I think that that's the technical question going forward that we need to answer—not whether this ob- this object or that is, is conscious. That's the wrong question. All right, Susan, do you want to quickly respond?
0: I'll just I'll respond to Bernardo uh, earlier. I just, you know, sometimes Bernardo, it looks like you are very sympathetic to biological naturalism, and you know I respect that and everything, but I just want to point out though that. Silicon chips, as I'm sure you know, are not the only kind of microchip under development. I mean, there's carbon nanotubes, there's all sorts. And of course, chip configurations are very, very different. I mean, that's why Tononi's IIT had been measuring various kinds of chips to see if there's some hope for consciousness in the context of uh, chip design. So I do think it's an open empirical question. And I don't think that we should be biological naturalists and assume at the get go that consciousness would have to be like the human case. To go back to the search for life, uh, you know, with NASA and space exploration in general, the idea of keeping things deliberately open to look for anomalies and to be humble because we only have one case of life and we only have one instance of consciousness in the sense that that is to say all the consciousness on earth is ultimately due to that same tree of life i know it differs and varies but i think we need to be very humble because it would be catastrophic if we just assumed at the get-go that systems as sophisticated as lambda And here i agree with donald hoffman that machines will eventually outthink us so we will need to know whether they're conscious because they may be claiming they are. And here, this could even become an AI safety issue. And this really is about human rights and about the issue of AI rights, should they, should they claim them.
5: I think this is utter and complete fantasy, ungrounded in fact and ungrounded in reason. Um, it is a question of the following form. We know living beings are conscious, right? So why can't a computer be conscious? We have to be humble about that. Well, let me illustrate the same question in other words. We know birds fly when they flap their limbs, right? So we have to be humble about that. And so why can't I fly if I flap my limbs? Well, the answer is a bird and me are completely different things. Now, I'm not endorsing necessarily biological naturalism as a philosophical position, but I recognize that what we call biology in nature is a very complex, very unique, very specific thing that is unlike anything else in nature. There is nothing in nature that is not metabolism that looks like metabolism. Even the complex patterns of electromagnetic fields in the sun's corona, they do not look like metabolism. There is nothing that does. And I think acknowledging this empirical observation, this empirical fact, is important, and we shouldn't co- confuse humbleness with a kind of open-mindedness that opens the gates for all kinds of fantasies that we have absolutely no reason to entertain whatsoever. Thank you all. I, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That was fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of philosophy of our times. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and also visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa
0: play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.